Hey everybody, welcome to the Station 34 podcast. I'm David Van Sluten. And I'm Lance Corhorn. And this is the podcast that accompanies the, the uh, company Lance owns called Ladder 34. You can go to ladder34.com, check out everything that we have to offer there. But we started the podcast a short while ago to be able to talk to people from the fire service all over the country. And today we couldn't be happy. We have a fantastic guest on the line with us today. He, uh, he gave a very influential talk at the FDIC convention in 2014. In 2017, he was the FDIC Instructor of the Year. He is the creator of the Nozzle Forward workshop class that he takes all over the country. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Fields. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You bet. We are thrilled <coughs> to have you on. We we want to talk to you about many, many things. Nozzle Forward is obviously one of the things we want to get to, but I think before we get to that, you, you have been with the Seattle Fire Department for how many years now? Well, I've been with Seattle for about, oh no, a, over 15, but I was with another place that's a, that's a neighbor of Seattle for about six. Okay, okay. So, so yeah. Now, growing up, and you can explain the family ties and everything that you have, to, the connection to the fire service, but growing up, can you... When was the first thing, when, when was the, the seed set for you to, to head into the fire service? When did you know this is what you wanted to do, and what steps did you take to get there? Um, well, so, yeah, uh, <clears throat> my father is also, and my brother is actually also firefighters. My my dad is coming up on uh, on retirement here in a, in a month or two, but... Uh, he was a bus driver when I was a kid, a city bus driver. And then he <clears throat> started working for the fire department when I was, you know, early teens, late, you know, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Okay. And <clears throat> there was, and just, the, you know, the first thing was like, oh my God, my dad's home all the time. Like, and he's, <laughs> he's throwing a ball and he's engaged and the other part, which I didn't realize then, but I know now, is he'd been a bus driver for about 13 or 14 years. And his demeanor, he was always, my dad's a great guy, yeah. but his demeanor off the job was massively different as a firefighter. Right. And, as a, and what I realized now was there was personal pride in what he was doing. Not, I mean, my dad's, a, both my parents are amazing workers, but um, for the first time, I think there was like, a, he, like he morally was in line with his occupation mm -hmm. instead of it just being something that he did. Yeah. Uh, and then there were two incidents um, <clears throat> uh, that happened right in front of my street. So I, uh, when I grew up in the city of Seattle, where I grew up was... Uh, was lower income. It was, you know, poverty and working class. And so, um, our, we, we were busy in the, in the neighborhood and there was stuff going on. And I was playing basketball behind a, my neighbor's house and we heard somebody's a car screeching and someone starts screaming. And we went out to the street <clears throat> and, um, like a probably a 78 Cadillac or something had hit a 10 year old who was crossing the street with her sister on her bicycle. And my house was third in from the corner and she was almost four houses in mm -hmm. and, and her, you know, things weren't good. And, and 
parts that are supposed to be inside were outside. And uh, I can remember all the adults in the neighborhood running out. And man, I mean, this goes to public schools, like as far as like when you sell someone to call 911, tell another person to call 911. Mm -hmm. And the adults were locking up. Like I could tell that they were looking at what was going on and they were hitting that never been here before heart rate super high no i'm supposed to do something's got that fight or flight reaction going and they weren't doing anything so i as a 13 year old or 11, 12 year old or something point at one of them and say go call 911 and then i tell another person to do it and then i'm like okay shit uh and I run over to get my dad and I remember knocking on, opening the door and going, dad. And he met me at the door and he was just normal. And I'm like, dad, there's a girl and she got hit by a car and she's really hurt. And I can remember this is I'm 50 and I can remember this very clearly. His face changed. Yeah. And he walked out and we do, you know, he started doing EMS. And by this point I'm hitting neurological overload and yeah. I'm like, eh, the world is, you know, it felt like I dropped some acid or something. And uh, the, the next thing you know, he walks out and starts rendering aid the best that he could, right? I mean, this she didn't make it, and uh, but she, they got her to the hospital. And, and up the road come um, the crews, like an engine, engine 28, ladder 12, and uh, I think ladder 12 was there. I know the medics were there too. The bus came up and they jump off and they look and I can remember him going, Oh, Hey Lee. And he's like, bah, 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 bah. and they're like, okay. And they were gone. Yeah. And it sounded like a different language. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood that at the time that I was there was the most diverse zip code in the United States. And we had, you know, within, and I worked in that neighborhood and when I was working there <clears throat> where it's gentrified some since then, but when I was working there, uh, there were 63 distinct languages within three minutes of my oh, firehouse. Man. My gosh. And so I was really prone, primed to language and because it was going on all around me. And I just remember it being a different language. And I went back in and, and I know now he, he basically debriefed me over the next bit of time. Just, hey, you know, you did the right thing, blah, blah. How, how are you feeling? And did, how'd you sleep last night? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then there was another incident where uh, there was a house fire right around the corner and, you know, I can just remember standing behind the, the, the people that were burning and the woman was watching her second story go and up the hill come this, this army of people that, you know, same group of people and they jump off and they descend on this place like a pack of hyenas. And the next thing you know, it's out, but I can remember the woman crying and the neighbor looking at her and saying, uh, when the fire department showed up, don't worry, honey, the fire department's here now. Everything's yeah. going to be okay. Yeah. And that was, for me, that was big because, it, you know, I think it was a couple of things. I think it was seeing personal reward, you know, personal satisfaction from the work morally. Yeah. And I think then it was, man, the 12-year-old's the not supposed to be telling the adults what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that whole, that whole like, you're really on your own. Yeah. Like, the, the, this, this concept of safety is a facade. You know, it's just, it's, it makes us feel good, but it's, it's, you're on your own. And, and then the third one was, I think, the, the nail in the coffin as far as what I wanted to do. Now, that doesn't mean I did it 
I mean, it was over 15 years. So I didn't get in till I was 30. I, and I did a bunch of other stuff, which has served me well in the fire service because um, it's diversified my experience base yeah. and, I, and I'm able to draw connections between other events and what goes on in, in our industry. So, yeah. Well, I, I can, I, I love what you're saying because I got into firefighting very late. I was 49. I just started about four years ago. My kids were out of the house and I was, uh, my wife and I were empty nesters. And I thought, you know what? I want to give this a try. I, I think I could do it. And, but I, I love what you're saying. Cause I, I have had jobs in the past too, that, you know, I just hated the job and it affects you not at work, but it affects you at home and the parent that you are and things like that. And then to see your dad go into that, that career and just, you know, the demeanor of him change and how that affects you. Um, I also love the fact that, you know, you're talking about these incidents and how you feel uh, when you watch these things taken care of. I mean, one of the things I, I love about the fire service is that, it, not from my own ego, but when you pull up to a scene, an incident, and, and people see that big red truck pull, uh, truck pull up, and there's, there's, there is a sense of calm with people. They're like, okay, help is here. They, you know, they know someone's right. going to be here to help them. And uh, right. I love that feeling. And I, I think that, that I do too. And I think one of the, the catches, right, is that for us as individuals is, is to, is to kind of get out of our own conceptual way, right? In mm -hmm. the sense that when you come into the fire service, you're telling yourself what you are. And often as people progress through their career, it turns into this, what we do, what we do, you know, we're the, we're the cutting edge, we're the tip of the spear, we're the, all this, like we equate ourselves more to Knights of the round table than we do to plumbers mm -hmm. and we're plumbers. Yeah. Our job, we have a specific job. And I mean, I think we wrap ourselves in kind of a banner of uh, heroism, but in fact, it's occupational expectation. Yeah, it's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, what you're supposed to do. And I think one of the things that sometimes happens, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I think that, you know, in talks that I've done, I've been openly um, critical of certain things in our industry. And, and, and I think that dissidence is patriotic. It's much easier to be quiet than it is to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, this stuff is awesome. This stuff smells like rotten fish a little bit like and and we're not being consistent and so you know i've done other things and so when i came to the industry i think i had a little less of a i, I never have gotten to the point where i'm self-serving or that i'm not self-serving that's not the right term i'm um indulgent with my own self as to what i do right and uh, and I think it's a, it's a delicate line, you know, because the vast majority of the fire service doesn't do firefighting on a regular basis. Yeah. So really what we're there for is the potential, not for what we do. And, and with that, one of the things I always hammer on is in every professional performance based occupation, whether you're in the military or you're in sports or you're a musician practice is the mark of all pro. That, that every professional in those occupations and ours has to realize that professionalism is tied to preparation. Yeah. Because that is, because actually going out and playing a game doesn't happen. I mean, in the NFL, how many weeks in the year and how many weeks do they play? Yeah. So everything else is getting ready for those 
and it, it's a it's a pyramid and i think that sometimes you know our industry we get a little it's human nature it's not our industry it's human nature to get a little bit lazy and complacent when it might not it probably won't happen yeah you know and and i think that that's then and and then we kind of couple that with what we think of ourselves and the next thing you know you know you you have people that are high divorce rates and are frankly blowhards yeah i mean nobody really wants to listen to that yeah you know, so yeah, it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting phenomena because you know firefighters have a bit of the the occupation has a bit of the folk hero yeah. aspect in this country. See, I've lived in another country where they weren't thought of highly. It was not a socially um, advantageous position to have. It, they, they were worried that the firefighters were going to pilfer. When they were in their houses, oh, I mean, it was, yeah. So where was, where was that? Well, I lived in Mongolia for okay. a while. Okay. Yeah, and it you know it falls into the 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 yoke of the old Soviet bloc. They they sure. were never part of the Soviet Union, but they were close uh, enough. They followed yeah. close enough. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's and and it's you know they're not thought of incredibly highly. I mean, the, so it it you know it's it's it's, it's interesting. Well, when you talk about things like you mentioned complacency and stuff like that in some of the fire service nowadays, is that kind of, in a way, I'm trying to make the connection between that and the beginning of Nozzle Forward. You know, I've read some things about the beginning of Nozzle Forward. I'm going to guess maybe and, and explain and elaborate on the fact that were you not getting some kind of training that you feel you needed? Were you in some incidents where you're like, hey, we need to be able to do this better and we've got to create yep. a way yep. to do this? Yeah, I was in an incident that um, I went to the Washington State Fire Academy and, and you know, place the fire, the fire service. So we have to start and it's, it's, it's well documented me talking about the fact that we don't have a jargon. We don't have a universal language that, that I mean, we have four different working definitions for indirect attack. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, three different, two different definitions for a flashover because modern day flashovers are old day black backdrafts, right? The yeah. oxygen starves. So we don't really communicate that well. And we, because, you know, we didn't, we didn't cross geographic bounds very much. Uh, and, and the internet, though it has some massive de- disadvantages, one of its advantages is the ability to transmit information faster than ever before. Yeah. I mean, you have, a hundred libraries of Alexandria within five seconds. Right. So, so what happened was, is I went and and every region has strong points and weak points. Well, it's, 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 it is an interesting, uh, series of uh, scenario that I was in just by happenstance, which was, I went to the Academy and I learned a particular method and the method was hit it, shut down, advance. And that worked every time there because it was a concrete building with the equivalent of an incipient fire in the bathroom, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's four, it's six pallets. Yeah, it's an you orchestrated know, like, event. Yeah, and it's eight, and the and the building doesn't burn, and there are no other fuels between the room of origin and where you're going, and right? no consequences. So, no consequences if it doesn't go well. Right. 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 And no real barometer to know when it goes when it does go well. <laughs> yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, there's no, there's no positive reinforcement. It's just, yeah, you did. So 
I got in a fire pretty early on that was not that fire. It needed continual successive application of water. And what had happened was is a, she's, she's now retired, but she was a lieutenant in Seattle named Meg Jones. And she knew my dad and had worked in the same station. And I was going through the academy for a different fire department. She was at the state as a contractor and she finds out who I am and pulls me aside. And she's, I mean, I, I, this is a paraphrase, but it was basically anyone that knows Meg knows this is pretty close. Uh, don't believe all this bullshit. They're telling you real buildings burn, Mm -hmm. keep the line on. And I heard her, but I didn't understand her. And I think that that's an important part in learning is sometimes you have to put stuff in the, in the bank and come back to it when you have the experience that puts it into context. Yeah. So three and a half months later, I got into this fire and it isn't, I mean, in my mind, my memory memorizes it as this catastrophic event because it was to my perception. Um, I, I got, I got cooked up a little bit, not, not like hospital wise, but it didn't go the way it was supposed to. I'd never had burns through gear before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never been that hot. And every time I had applied a short burst of water, the fire went out. And this time I applied a short burst and it went out and then came right back when right. I shut down. And so um, I came out of that event and I think uh, the mental scars were, you know, there is no physical scars other than I got some blisters on, on my scalp and the, you know, my, my neck and my ears and, you know, my backs and my knees and all that stuff. Yeah. But, um, and it hurt, but it mentally scared me mm-hmm. because I had already observed and watched, um, what happens when it goes poorly and we, we spend four days trying to get people out out of a building. Now I wasn't in at that point, but the Pang fire directly affected the fire that uh, the fire station that I work in today that my dad worked in. In fact, for about six hours, we thought one of the guys that had died was my dad. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I had this like nagging, like this isn't a joke. And I can remember the guys talking about afterwards how the fire was uh it was a good fire and i realized then that this was not in line with the other stuff that i had done and that uh you shouldn't be blindsided in the middle of like clearly this i've only got three months on this is like my second fire in this this fire department and it's definitely outside the scope yeah so I got turned on to um, a couple of writers, Andy Fredericks, uh, you know that that kind of stuff, and I was I, I read it and um, and I was like, oh, this is the other side of the coin, yeah. and because of what I'd done outside with athletics, I understood that what I was seeing in the fire Academy, what I'd just come out of wasn't a comprehensive professional athlete or physical coaching that fire departments teach technique. Yeah. Technique is second to principle. If you watch Dan Gable coach wrestling, 
he coaches the guys on leverage before he teaches them how to do the particular thing. He, he gets them recognizing Travis Stevens in judo, he, that you recognize where you're at in relationship to your other person. And then you funnel that down to usually it, most performance-based occupations break it down to about three choices if you're skilled in the moment, right? But tap, rack, bang. That's why there's only three and why it's organized the way it is for the military is because that's the probability of misfire. So everything braces off probability, not possibility. And I was fresh enough out of my sport that I recognized the problem with the training because I'd been coached by world-class coaches and what I was getting at the fire Academy wasn't, it was, well, there was, you know, everything was, this is one time I, well, here's what I did. Wow. 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 The best coaches in the world, don't use their own experience as the validation of their system. And so, and it wasn't a system. It was a collection of techniques that varied. I mean, I can remember one time we stretched hose for an hour and a half, and then I go to another station at the academy with someone that's quote in the curriculum and they do a stretch and they tell me how to stretch that nobody stretches that way. And we spend another hour and a half learning a completely new method and I realized at that moment, you know, I had a, I got a chip on my shoulder and I was like, I can go into any wrestling gym in the fucking world and they're going to teach the basic single leg in the same way. And then once you get that, they're going to teach some variables. So I recognized that it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't principle based. It was a collection of techniques with this concept that you'll figure it out when you get there, yeah. which having been in a scenario that that is, that doesn't work. Yeah. And, uh, so after getting cooked and I didn't know what the principle was, right. I didn't have enough experience in the, in the field to figure out. So what I did was, um, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go and I'm going to tour because I'd already done this in my sport. I'm going to learn what I need to get and I'm going to go out and I'm going to practice with everybody that's doing this skill set. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to work on it and I'm going to link it. And I did this without kind of cognitively thinking about it because it's what I'd been trained to do for my, in my, in my sport, mm -hmm. like take it, learn it, process it, connect it. And, and that whole concept of what are we doing, why are we doing it, when would we do it, and how would we do it. Right. Fire departments put how before the other ones, which means you have no context. And that's why people will, I've never needed that. Well, you don't know that you needed it if you don't know how to do it. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, uh, and you don't know where it fits. So over the next mm, 10 years, I just went out, took classes, practiced, read, processed, tested. And then I started basing it off of, instead of these fictional evolutions that occur in our brain and on a whiteboard, mm -hmm. I started looking at NIOSH reports. I started looking at other people's reports on fires and going, oh, it's a 14 to 1800 square foot house. It's a single line fire, two bends on a one story, three on a two. Uh, on average, and what are the bends? And so I isolated what the corners, what what the, regardless of the space between walls, what angles do you need? To, and there's three. Everything breaks down to one of three choices. And if you get those three, and then build them out into this from probable, and put them into context, 
within a couple of days, you can give people a blueprint which allows them a principle with technique attached to the principle when this, this is your first choice, right. this is your second choice, this is your third choice, including backing out, which most places, and I've been a lot of places, and I will say that only a handful before we were there ever practiced actively backing out. Yeah, we, You might, you know, we'd tell each other that, well, you might have to back out of this one, but you won't do it if you don't practice it. And I'm proof of that. Yeah, I locked up in that hallway and didn't back out and didn't leave the line on, even though it felt good when the line was on and bad when it was off. I kept doing what I'd been trained to do because my heart rate was over a certain rate. Yeah, And so uh, that's, that's how it started. And then about 12 years ago, um, you know, 12 years ago, somebody was like, Hey, we were doing a drill and they saw me do something, which I had done because I'd started formulating this system. Would you show me that? And so I showed them that and I showed them the things that kind of went around it and the reasons why. And, and a couple of weeks later, I got a call from a small fire department, uh, kind of East of the King County, the Seattle Metro area. And they, they said, Hey, our, we just had a fire and two guys that you showed some stuff to did some stuff that we'd never seen and they destroyed it. Uh, would you come show that stuff? And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess. I mean, probably not qualified for this, but okay. <laughs> and, uh, so I showed that. And then that first year, first class, there was 16 people. And then a couple months later, I get another call and there was about 20 couple months later, get another call. There's 24, get one more. So the first year we did four classes mm -hmm. and, um, second year we did 12 third year we did 35. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's just, and it's the, the thing that I'm stoked on with this is that we're pretty, we're different and I'm not saying other people are wrong. I'm saying for me, I have a very strict code uh -huh. personally and there's certain things I will do and there's certain things that I won't do even if it would be quote good for the program because I don't agree with it right so what what's what's happened is is we've been able to build this thing um, with a good word and people going through it. And I think the general public acceptance of what we're doing and maybe even understanding of what we're doing has gotten so much better, but I don't do, I don't, I don't have swag. I don't sell swag. I don't, once you've taken the program, you can come back and take it again, whenever, wherever, with a couple of exceptions, uh, just because you've already given me your time. And yeah. so as people are progressing, and as the system is getting more refined because more users are using it and sending that data back, we're able to really isolate. So the program that we taught 12 years ago was fundamentally the same core group of technique, but it wasn't organized the same because our depth of understanding and the things that you have to say to get people to understand what you're thinking and how to do it and the drills, it's become way more specific and it's continually training. I was on the phone yesterday with one of the guys that's been teaching with me for almost the longest. Uh, he's in the top three and yeah. And uh, we were talking about something that, you know, we've talked about multiple times over the years and like, okay, well let's, let's pull this out 
try it this other way and compare it because over the last 12 years, we've done somewhere between 37 and 40,000 firefighters. Wow. And so, and what makes it work is it's a principle. It's not you shall or you will. It's here are ways to accomplish. This is what we need to accomplish. Yep. These are the settings that we need to accomplish it. And here it is. And it's simple. It's it's not complex. And it has redundancy and safety built in. And I think that over the course of the system being taught, it's, we've gone from, and I'm not saying anything different. Maybe I'm saying it better because I've said it more times, but you know, when we first came on the scene, I'm honest. I'm, I'm always going to be honest. <laughs> and I was critiqued because I was saying things publicly that quote, you're not supposed to say, right? Yeah. Because it, because it pokes at some of the fabric of our, uh, that we've wrapped ourselves in. And I think early on the program was considered a program of hotheads. And I mean, I know guys were saying, oh yeah, yeah, you're teaching people to get killed. They shouldn't be, you know, flowing's going to kill them. I mean, that was literally conversations and over the, but because we didn't engage in the petty, we just keep doing what we're doing. And then what is, what is the UL that, you know, I was part of that interior attack with, with McCormick and all those guys. And, what does it show? It shows that within 20 feet of the fire room, keeping a line on while advancing is, I quote, the single most important skill that an interior team can have yeah. because it removes the risk for everyone. Mm -hmm. And you know, if it's not, if it's not working, you know, yeah, which becomes a go, no go. Right. So I think over time, as people have heard the, what I'm saying more and more and more and more, we've gone from being kind of this avant-garde movement to definitely dancing to our own drummer, but we're not so, it's not so crazy, right? It's right. it's like, oh yeah, these guys actually are fundamentally sound and they're morally dialed. You know, the other thing that I, ta I caught a lot of crap on early on was, you know, it's interesting how the human brain works because I, at times I'll get asked questions or I'll talk about something that is about leadership. And, and this is an important one. There's no such thing as informal leadership. There is leadership. It yep. is a series of characteristics that are exhibited at every level. Every level, yep. And a good chain of command has this. When someone says informal leadership, semantically what they're saying is, well, you're informal, I'm formal. Yours isn't as important as mine. Whereas in fact, in order for one to exist, the other one has to exist, right? And good leaders know where their sphere is and where it isn't. I don't deal with budgets. There are decisions that chiefs are going to have to make that I don't have to make, but vice versa. And early on, when I would be describing characteristics that are contrary to leadership at every level, um, sometimes there was a group of people that would hear these things and they couldn't go back to their fire department and go, Oh yeah. You know, field said something that I've done and I've never thought about it and I'm not going to do that anymore. They couldn't go back and admit their own mistakes, yeah. which I do publicly, right? <laughs> I, I am very much about being accountable and, and I would, they can't go say that. And so what they do is they go back and say, Chief Fields doesn't like chiefs, which is 
completely asinine. I don't, they're people that I don't like and they exist at every level, (laughs) you know, and (laughs) there are people that I do like that exist at every level. And, but they couldn't go back and say, Oh man, I kind of got called on some behavior and I think he's right. Yeah. And I'm going to change, which is the mark of an adult. So instead they would personally attack me. And there was rumor floating in certain circles that I was anti-establishment, which is not the case. I am pro-establishment if it is just and fairly administered and that the individuals are accountable. And the other aspect of that is dissidence is the most patriotic thing. Yeah. To stand up and say, I care about this enough that I'm going to critique some stuff and I know I'm going to take crap over it is a much more powerful statement than going along with it because you don't, you know, so the program has, has, has progressed and I'm, I'm, I've been very happy with the people that, uh, that I've been able to, that have come into the fold and we, I think we have a, a, a really good group of people. And what I can say is that the cadre that teaches with me, we're all friends yeah. and that, and we know each other's kids and we call each other. I mean, COVID has, has curtailed. We're, we're picking back up and have been since October, but for those months, you know, guys were calling and checking on each other. I mean, we've traveled together. We've most of our conversations don't revolve around fire. Yeah. And and so the, I think the cadre of people that I have, I mean, I always comment that, you know, or we as a group comment that we are each other's fire department, Yeah. that being able to work together and have a sounding board and all that is, is, um, has, has increased our shelf life in our industry because it gives us the energy to go keep going when you're dealing with some of those negative characteristics at every level. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting thing. And like my wife and I and the cadre talk about the nozzle forward. It's not me, it's the nozzle forward and it's a sum total of its parts. Right. Right. So, yep. Well, I, I tell you, one of the things I love about the things you're saying is, is regarding, uh, I know like I, when I went through the academy, it's exactly like you say, you're taught techniques, you're taught strategies and things like that. But until you get out there and you feel that heat and you, for the first time in a fire situation, you get your SCBA on and you're like, okay, I, I, I can actually breathe. I'm not breathing in smoke. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but to, to get to that situation where, where you're you're educating people in a manner where you're saying, look, it, this is what you're going to be experiencing. This is what has to be done. Now that you know the scenario, this is how we're going to handle it. Rather than, right. here, here are the basics. Go, go try it out. Or worse, you'll figure it out when you get there. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is asinine. That goes against every other bit of behavioral science that yeah. we've... And and, and really what it comes from is we think we're better than we are. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, the, as an industry, we think that our performance, I mean, yeah. I mean, I worked in the trades, um, and you know, there's a jargon that you learn in a process of apprenticeship and there is quantifiable objective standards. And once you get out of the Academy, what are those? Right. I mean, like, yeah. and and you also hear this. Well, no one got hurt and the fire went out. Fields, yeah. no fire still burning in the city. And I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Like for, for two points, yeah. and I'm not advocating risky behavior, but it is a combat sport. And 
there, you're going, I've been hurt on good fires, not catastrophically, but this idea that, you know, that, well, no one got hurt and the fire went out. The question is, is did the fire go out to the best of our ability? Mm-hmm. And you should always be looking at it from, okay, here is what went really well. You, we kicked ass on this. So let's drill to reinforce this behavior. Let's publicly say this was great. And so that we we use that as a, a beacon for everyone to work towards. And then we look at what went didn't go wrong so well. And we go, hey, we can work on this. Let's let's isolate it down to its components and figure out where the principle of failure was and then put the system back together. And we can do that through practice. So, you know, and, and, and did it go out? Did it meet? I always go, if I could give my understanding of the fire service to a civilian and have them watch the fire, would they be happy? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then I don't want to hear the cop out. I mean, that, that like, well, is, is, the individual removing their culpability, right? They're, 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 they're removing their professional standard. Well, you know, the pipes don't fucking leak. They're all over the place, but they don't leak. So, or they do leak a little bit, but you still get water out of the faucet. Mm-hmm. It's like not acceptable. Yeah. Not good. <laughs> you know, not, not a disposition that's acceptable. If failure is always going to occur. Yeah. And, and we have to take away our personal, ego so that it doesn't offend our sensibilities so that we can look at it and go, yep, that wasn't as good as it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. My last fire, like it didn't, I mean, it went all right. It went well. There was some really good stuff. There were a few things uh, that, that, that could be improved personally as well as, as an industry. And, you know, we do pretty well, but you know, so I don't, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not upset about it. I'm like, it's like, yeah, this is like, this is like, listen, your single leg wasn't any good. You got to learn to sw- throw a swing single. Your arms are too long to not be throwing a swing single. Yeah. And that, that single leg that you're throwing just isn't going to win. And like, okay, yeah, coach, you got it. Yep. I mean, no, not like, oh, I got to make up with like, well, there was a 15 reasons that I wasn't doing it. No, I wasn't doing it. I wasn't. And it's not, it's not personal. And I think that's, we connect our occupation again this concept of self we connect our occupation to our to our moral disposition and our and our emotional state because we take such pride in it but yeah i take a lot of pride in other stuff that i've done but i'm not emotional about it yeah is that where you think I want to this, be a prof- this ag- aggressive fire behavior really stems from is is that like longing to accomplish what you know aside from making a rescue or, or anything like that, where does that hyper aggressive and in a, you know, in a knowledgeable standpoint, where does that really stem from? So um, that's a, that's an interesting question. And I think we got to define some terms. I mean, I understand what you're asking, but aggressive actually comes from Latin and it means someone making rapid decisions based upon experience and knowledge that is the root of aggressive Mm -hmm. so when we say aggressive behavior and i've been quoted as saying aggressive firefighting isn't the problem it's the solution dumb and ass both come from (laughs) anglo-saxon so they're different they're different language groups so what i would say is that the sit outside and lob is 
when someone says that's what we're going to do always, that's, that's silly. And if someone says we go in, which was what I was told, we go in because that's what we do, that is equally silly. Mm-hmm. We make aggressive decisions to go and no-go on a continual basis throughout the beginning, middle, and end of the event. And I think that the, the interior disposition is appropriate. We've proven it. Our numbers prove it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, if you went to, in 2012 or excuse me, 13, I think one point, now I'm not talking about injuries, but I'm talking about actually dying inside buildings. There was about less than two firefighters per 100,000. In the same year, there was 77 loggers per 100,000, 36 garbage, collect, 33 garbage collectors, and 28 pizza delivery guys wow. that went to death per 100,000 doing their occupation. Mm-hmm. Pizza delivery so, guys. Pizza delivery guys <laughs> killed violently, I might add. Wow. Right? And and so I think when we look at our numbers and go, boy, no, I mean, it doesn't, it's not popular, but it doesn't make statistical sense to say that no one's ever going to get hurt or get killed. It's not possible. Yeah. So what we should be saying is just like the military, what is killing people? There's two things killing people, mostly, or three. Fall in, fall on. Operating above the fire without a handline. Mm-hmm. Or we have a handline and we, quote, pencil or don't flow substant- enough water, substantial or any water. Those are the three things. And two of those things can be fixed with well-placed handlines. Yeah. Right? So... When, I, when we're talking about interior disposition, which um, I, I understand what you were asking, you, this, this concept that we've always got to go, 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 go. Well, that's also the fact that our, I, I don't think that's accurate. And I think that re, real good, the, which is the majority of firefighters, make these subtle decisions. I think the loud mouths are the ones that say we never go in or that have, you know, halligans and stuff tattooed all over them and, and, you know, have a belt buckle and a t-shirt that says, I fight what you fear. And if you can read this, your second do, and all of that bullshit that we consume for identity, mm-hmm. those people are, are blowhards and they make up the sound because they're blowing it through bugles where for most of us, we're having these subtle conversations and our numbers prove it. Now, as far as our interior disposition compared to some other countries, it exists because our country builds different, mm-hmm. right? The European model works there, but it doesn't work here because they don't have the fuel loads. They don't have the types of buildings. They don't have the ventilation profile. Their building, their cities are old, 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 old. Ours aren't really, even our oldest aren't. And so, and, and also like in my city, we've burned the goddamn thing down. Yeah. And, and there's a massive, whether we want to say this or not, property is important. It's people's stuff. And I can tell you about one of these things that changed my perspective. It's people's stuff. And it's also public safety, so trust in the system. And the system is working. So I think structural protection is is totally valid. What I don't think we should be doing is allowing fire departments to start teaching their people to fight fire with low flow systems 
because the numbers show us people don't perish when the line is on. Yeah. So what should we teach first? What should be your lizard brain? And that allows us to operate in these spaces because we're cooling them down. Right. So the, the smoke, you know, not uh, the, the diving underneath and, and pushing forward further faster than we've ever done in the history of the fire service with fuel loads that have increased the heat release rate and materials that have put at least three times the number of BTUs per square foot in the last 50 years, right? There's more stuff and it burns faster, not hotter, faster. And we've got gear that inoculates us from the space so that we're so deep before we realize we're hot. Yeah. Uh, part of what I learned was from guys that fought fire without masks. They started when they weren't wearing masks. They couldn't operate in those spaces. They had to do things like cool the space down as they advance and, and vent appropriately. And, and so I don't think we're really, I mean, it's a really good question and it, and it really begs multiple facets, but I think that my experience at least with quite a bunch of people is that most firefighters understand the subtlety and the difference. It's the guys that are trying to make their identity with their occupation that have to be one extreme or the other. Sure. It's the nerds and the jocks, right? It's yeah. the same bullshit high school conversation <laughs> where you can be intellectually curious and physically capable. They don't, they're not mutually exclusive, right? We, but we want to compartmentalize and we want to point the finger because it's human nature. And instead, I think the vast majority of firefighters are, whether or not the question on their skill level and understanding is another conversation, but I think most of, most of us are pretty concept. We're pretty good at making decisions and, 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 so I think it's the, I think it's what sells the funny papers yeah. really. And on either case, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and, and that's kind of why I stay out of the, the mainstream of fire instruction with is, is, is because, and we just do our own thing because I'm just, I'm too old for that stuff. I'm not interested <laughs> in it. it. It doesn't interest me and it isn't, it isn't beneficial to the trade. Yeah. And that was one of the things, you know, we really wanted to highlight from this podcast. Like we said, there's a lot of people outside of the fire service who may be looking for what, what, why are we, why are firefighters doing that? What is the perspective of, of going into a building and, and making that aggressive uh, attack on, on that fire? So you, you'd mentioned something about a, you know, this is people's stuff. What, what was your. Yeah. So, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the story as it happened. Um, because there was a mistake because it, it points out some mistakes. Um, but it was a two line fire with a friend of mine who's now a lieutenant. And to date, I think he and I are the only two that are aware that this happened. I mean, I've mentioned it to a few people, but uh, in, in, in that was on this fire. So we went into this house <clears throat> and it was a two line fire that had some weird remodeling done. And so the first line, I mean, there are, it was like that moment when you're like, you've been working and working and working and our people have been learning some skills and, you know, we've been implementing this stuff in Seattle and two guys get off the rig and they do the stuff. It goes stunningly. And this first new engine just does a bang up job. But me and my pal are on the second due line. So we come in and we hold 
it was a fire you kind of had to pincher it right it had been divided and it had burned through a party wall so you'd hit it on one side and it it moved the 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 positive you know the the pressure would cool and then move the byproduct around the other wing so we're getting it and we uh, we, uh you know i know i'm sitting there smoke to you know it's it's cooling down but we're our line is stationary and uh my pal's on the nozzle and he's sitting there and i'm like hey i'm gonna go see what they need i'll be right back and i'm moving down the wall with my butt on the wall in a kind of a crouch it's it's a little bit hot but not i can crouch it's hot at the ceiling pretty cool everything else but can't see my feet and i'm thinking to myself you know this is silly i know that i should be on my knees <sighs> never mind it's on the tent tail end of the fire uh we know it's not below us never mind so i keep standing i don't move two or three more feet and the door to the basement that nobody could you couldn't see was open so i'm leaning on the wall and now i'm going down the stairs my partner starts yelling fields fields and i come back up and i'm like hey do we know there's a basement? He's like, did you fall? And I'm like, no, no, I was searching the bottom of the stairs. Where's the captain? So, uh, <laughs> so I, I move up and I see what's going on. They don't need us. I move back. I shut a bedroom door that was open, um, <clears throat> which seems inconsequential. And I find the captain. I'm like, Hey cap, I found a doorway to the stairs. that's down below. There's a basement. I don't think it's been searched. He's like, great find. And he, <laughs> he sends a truck down there. Uh, and, and so, but I fell to the bottom of the stairs. And as I was, I was falling, I was thinking, I knew better. I knew better. And if I wasn't a professional faller downer, I probably would have hurt myself. And I'm thinking if I dislocate my shoulder or break my neck or whatever, I've got it coming because I knew better. Yeah. Right. This is, this is the instant, like, no, no, this guy isn't a threat. Ooh, there's his single. And, um, so after the fire, we come out and it was good. And the family is starting to collect. There's 10, 12 people of this family and I had been in the room that the, 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 the family comes up and tells, and I'm standing next to the chief and, and I'm still in standby. You know, my mask is slung, but not, not on my head. It's hanging down and my gear is still on. Whereas everyone else is kind of going to, no, not everyone, but people are going into rehab yeah. and, and it's, it's wind down. And, lady comes up and says hey uh my grandmother needs her medications and they're in that room right there and i look at her like hey chief i shut the door on that room i know exactly where it is can you tell me let me go get the stuff and he's like yeah of course so she kind of draws me a little map tells me where i gotta go and i walk in and i get into the room i open up the door and there's some charring and some soot at the ceiling but it was a not you know the door was open but it was pretty distal from the fire so we're dealing with just byproduct and a little bit of heat and i'm looking at the wall and there's a bunch of paintings and pictures clearly a lot of them are done by her her kids that when when they were kids um but there's also some and there are pictures and there's one picture that i will i mean if i forget it it's time to it's time to depart the world yeah because it's this picture that is, it's about two and a half feet, of, no, maybe two feet by about 18 inches. And it's black and white. And you know, when you look at those photos taken in the early part of the 1900s, yeah. they have that hue. So this one is unlike the other ones, which were clearly 
important. This one is 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 matted and it's the you know it's it's under glass and it's unscarred. And so I and it's of this old woman in a white top, black dress, standing in front of this picket fence, probably somewhere in the Midwest or towards the South, with this kind of dilapidated but obviously active and used farmhouse behind her. And she's standing, and her fists are clenched, and she's standing like she's she's getting ready to fight Muhammad Ali. She's not happy about this picture. <laughs> and and she's probably a hard woman. And uh, so I pull that picture and I pull a bunch of other ones and I find the medications and I take out an armful of stuff and I hand it to the family. I walk over to them directly and hand it to them. Now, as a firefighter, we don't have that kind of interaction. Typically, that's the PIO or the chief or the aide or whoever, right? It's not the line personnel because we're doing other stuff. <clears throat> and as I'm taking my gear back off, um, they're flipping through and they come to that picture that stood out to me and they pull it out. They set everything else on the ground and every one of those family are standing around looking at me, looking at the picture, looking at me and they're all crying. And one of the ladies comes over and she's like, I want to give you a hug. And I'm like, Whoa, I would give you a hug, but I am filthy. And you don't, you know, and she's like, like, what's up? And she's like, that's my great, great grandmother. She'd been born a slave oh, and emancipated it too. And this is the first piece of property that my family owned as free Americans. And, you know, as a firefighter, we're supposed to emit a certain persona you know, my eyes well up. I'm like, holy shit. You know, I'm, I'm almost to my, you know, it's, I, it's the, the comment and the effect of the emotional effect of these people had a direct physical impact on me for a few, you know, a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, and she's like, I can't thank you enough. And I'm like, no, no, we are your fire department. You've been paying taxes. We, this is what we're supposed to do. And I'm, you know, I'm stoked. And I went over and looked at it and everyone was thankful for it. And, um, that was it, man. That yeah. was, that for me was a major change in my firefighting disposition for sure. two things. One is my agency used to be very, very, very aggressive, overly aggressive with salvage. It was something that we put pride in as the years have gone on. It, that we've drifted away from it and gone to this this much you know we don't do salvage as much now salvage shouldn't take the place of suppression and search and all those things right but when i come out of a fire now and we're on an apartment and we're upstairs and we're flowing water and i see a truck standing around on the outside of the building not taking initiative and our, our command module isn't thinking about it it spurs me. It's like, this isn't just stuff Yeah, that we're not talking about Ikea couches, right? We're talking about things that are irreplaceable and super important to those individuals of which it's not yours and mine or any of our position to determine what those things are or aren't. Our value structure doesn't apply to them. And I'm not saying that we should be going on suicide missions, 
But I am saying that interior suppression saves billions of dollars in stuff. And also, besides lives, things that are really important. And for me, that wasn't an extremely taxing fire other than falling down the stairs. Yeah. We were the second line supporting a line that was doing a good job. We flowed a little water, but we didn't need to flow much. And it was everything sum total. And I think as firefighters, as we move through our job and we go from call to call to call to call, we forget those little things. Yeah. And we don't recognize that those little things are happening. And um, so it changed my perspective on salvage uh, in that, my pers- I came into the Seattle Fire Department when salvage wasn't prioritized. If I ever get to a position to influence things in that realm, I will advocate salvage. Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Why not? Like, we're already, there's no risk, right? There's, there's you know, throw some runners, make a catch-all. Um, don't put salvage ahead of suppression, but don't don't neglect it. And right. yeah. And, and the other one is, is never, ever, ever utter. It's just stuff. Yeah. Because it's not your place. And, um, you know, well, you can't, you I, I'm, can't... I'm from Mikey's plumbing. It's, they're just joints. Yeah. They're the second most important thing. Stuff is number two on the priority list. You you can't put a dollar value on like emotional possessions like that. Because I can tell you from my own experience, seriously, the most prized possession I have in my home is a picture that my wife had sketched for me for a Christmas gift of our first house we had in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This little tiny piece of shit Cape Cod that was the house... First house we bought, it's the house we lived in when both of our daughters were born. Just tremendous memories in this house. And she, a couple years after we moved there, she had, and I'll tell you what, if our house goes up, I'm grabbing that picture before I grab any, anything. Well, Hell yeah. I'll get the family out first, but I'm grabbing that picture yeah. because I have, just like that thing, I have such an emotional tie to that. Oh, so there is a life property algorithm to your decision making yeah Yeah. exactly and and (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's you know it's 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 an interesting thing and i think when we allow ourselves i mean i think if other people that aren't in the fire service are listening to this well then we have a chance to make a connection between people in the fire service yeah every time something happens in the fire service it's paralleled outside like we somehow set our industry apart it's part of because it's made up of people their same insecurities their same strengths their same decision making their same um all that same stuff goes on in the fire service but we somehow tell ourselves it's different it's not different it's it's part of society right and and i think that for me and uh for me i've after the first couple of years of being enamored with being there, um, and and uh, and and having made mistakes like, well, I mean, I, I can tell you about a funny mistake that set me kind of one of the little things that kind of set me in the right direction. But it, it, you know, after being involved, I look for solutions in 
other arenas. I look, I cross pollinate, I cross reference. I, you know, I include my personal interests in linguistics and history in my decision making and, and how I go about solving problems because anything that we're ever going to do, the beauty of history, people say it's a silly subject. The beauty of history is that it teaches you to be humble because you realize that nothing that you do is ever going to be completely unique. It might be unique to you and me, but somebody has done it and thought it and said it. And for me, there's, uh, I find security in that in the sense that it, it allows me to know that I'm not too far off base, that people have had these conversations before. And maybe those conversations, if I spend enough time listening to them, will help me not make those same mistakes. And so I cross-pollinate my fire service and it with with everything and like how I parent, how I firefight, how I am a husband, all of those things follow the same principle. They're they're different manifestations. And so when people make the job their identity, the job should be a medium of personal expression. Right? It should be an example of how we do things and the lives that we live and the decisions that we make and the way that we affect everything. I mean, there are people out there that have abandoned their family because they want to be part of another fire department that they can then have a better reputation. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, that's not very familial now, is it? No. But they're, you know, I mean, it's like, so there's weird things that go on for our need to be part of something. Whereas by using it as a medium, you just, you approach it, I feel more honestly, and it becomes something that is no longer isolating. I can talk about this stuff with other people outside the industry because we're talking about a principle and not about firefighting. Yeah. Yep. And I think that that's really, I mean, I feel like it's really important, you know, in this era where we have so much information, we still only want to listen to the people that agree with us. You know, it's like, you should be listening with all this information. You should be listening to everything, processing it yeah. and assimilating it. And, and so, yeah, you know, that the whole medium of, of following suit. So Early on, I realized by looking at my seniors, because a lot of stuff wasn't being told, it was just being modeled, and and sometimes good, sometimes bad. And I noticed that everybody had uh, helmet lights. And I'm like, well, shit, you must need a helmet light. I'm going to go get one. So I go to the store, and I'm going to buy these helmet lights at the local place, and they've, they've got a bunch of them. They've got the $4 one that, that's not very bright. They've got their... their um, $60 one that has 14 different settings that you can see from Mars. I mean, <laughs> and everything in between. So the one that's 60 bucks is clearly the better. So I buy it. No, I buy two because if one's good, two's better. Right. And I go out to the next training and I turn these goddamn helmet lights on. And <laughs> one of my senior guys looks at me and he's like, what are you trying to do? Put me syncopal, turn those things off. And I'm like, he's like, what are you doing with those? And I'm like, Oh, you know, they're, uh, I noticed everybody had helmet lights and he's like, right, right, right. And he explained to me that helmet lights are your, re are your reading lights. They should be angled up out of your eyes because they're, that light should be dull enough. Have you ever tried to drive with high beams and fog? Yeah. 
So a dull light reflected in the smoke tells you what it's doing because it's reflecting and it's out of your eyes so you're not blind. And your your chest light is your steering light. And, and so I went, you know, it's the whole, that whole thing of like, um, I saw a guy with a mustache. I'm going to grow one that's twice as big. <laughs> and, you know, I saw a guy with a tattoo. I'm going to have tattoos over my entire body minus my eyelids. You know, it's like, it's that whole imitation without understanding. And today, just like my senior guy, I use the $4 light that melts and I throw it away. Yeah. I don't use the $60 light. And, um, and so, you know, that whole, like, are we imitating? Are we doing what we think we're supposed to do? Are we doing, do we understand so that we can actually make the right decision in the right setting and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it's that whole imitation versus comprehension yeah. component. Well, listen, Aaron, I, I can't thank you enough. You've been so gracious with your time. I, I do have one more quick question, if you don't mind. Um, of course not. In regards to, I was curious about, you know, the whole uh, nozzle forward philosophy and everything that you teach when you when you run these classes. Over your time now at the Seattle Fire Department, has that become part of their training regimen? I mean, has it had an impact within Seattle to where they uh, they've incorporated some of those some of those philosophies internally um, there? I mean, yes. Okay. Uh, it, to to the point of, it's not the nozzle forward, just like it's not in Charlotte. Yeah. It's Charlotte Fire Hose, Seattle Fire Hose. Okay. Um, I, I'm the principal author for all of the material. I've developed a cadre that's in an internal, uh, within SFD cadre, and we do annual training. We're in, I just came out of the drill school. I, I teach, we teach all the rookies. So, yes, they, there's a few things that, that I show in the, in the nozzle forward that Seattle doesn't use because they don't need it. It mm -hmm. doesn't, it, the system, that part of the system doesn't work with us, but yes, no, I mean, it's, it is the standard we've gotten. We've had, I've been with the last two academies pretty much full time, but before that for, we're about 15 recruit schools in now that they have varying levels of exposure over the last 10 or 11 years we've been implementing in the first few years it was a little slow and it was slow because and it's it's well-meaning but people wanted us to do this so we started doing it and we'd write our lesson plans as we knew we should and we had to compromise certain things because the people that were overseeing the whole process didn't understand what we were trying to get at mm -hmm. they didn't they hadn't played a training module for the long game, they've always played for the short game. What can I get in an hour and a half that I can use tomorrow? And we do that, but we also look at what can I get in an hour and a half that we're going to build on next year yeah. and the year after. And what's your two-year, five-year, eight-year plan? Um, and because we've implemented in so many places, we're, we're pretty good with that. I mean, within you know, we, we still make mistakes, but we, we have a good way and we, we have a process for figuring out whether it works or not, or is it better or worse? And so Seattle has been, because my early lesson plans had to be doctored to fit someone's comprehension, Not, and I'm not being critical, it's just objective fact. It, they didn't know what they were looking at, Yeah. right? And, and now that they do, and that also, here's the other part, is we've earned the trust. Yeah. We've earned the trust of the people that those guys can go and gals can go, hey, 
these guys, these people know what they're doing. Let's just make sure that nothing crazy happens, but let's let them run. And so in the last few years, the the interaction between Seattle's and and our group has gotten even better. Yeah. So the, the simple answer is yes, it is what we do. Does everyone in our in our fire department are they good at it or know it? No, but damn near everybody on the tailboard does now. Yeah, because we've replaced you know five five hundred people since we've started doing this. So yeah, it is it is the standard. We we estimate somewhere in the vicinity of um besides individuals there's somewhere in the vicinity of about three to 350 fire departments that implement major if not the whole thing that's great so yeah so it's it's uh, in varying levels i mean that's and i think that's the big play right from a fire training perspective we can't play the short game exclusively we have to play lesson plans and, and programs that are designed for short gains and long-term development. And they, they have to go hand in hand. So you have to be able to say, Hey, trust us why we're doing this. It will make sense next year. Yep. You know, and, and we don't typically as an industry do that very well. Good. Well, listen, Aaron, again, we can't thank you enough for your time. You've been, like I said, you've been more than generous. We are very excited to have you on. This has been a great conversation. I, I would tell people if you want to know more about Aaron and, and what he does and what he teaches, all you got to do is Google Aaron Fields Nozzle Forward. There is tons of great information that comes out. But as far as what what is the best way for people to directly reach? Uh, reach yeah, Nozzle the best way is just to go to the website. Our website's um, and is under a little bit. We, we are in the process of organizing it a little differently, but at currently and, and forever, what you, the best way to do is just go to the website and click the link and it'll, the email will come directly to me. And then, you know, I much prefer phone to email. So I'll, we'll exchange numbers or whatever, set a time and then, and then we can talk. And as far as the calendar goes for this coming year, we are definitely picking back up and the calendar isn't updated. We've we got a bunch of stuff on the books. So if people know the program and are planning on taking it, you got to give me about a week and we're going to start updating all the, you know, the first part of this year was pretty slow for, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. So, but, but we start again next month, uh, going to catch a can and then we're, um, we're, we're heading around Washington and then we're back East and the, the Midwest. And so, great. Yep. Again, thank you so much, Aaron. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It. It's been Thanks a great for conversation. Out. You bet. And uh, stay safe and uh, hope to see you in the future. Will do. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lance? Great. That Training. was great information. Great information. Great, great, great interview. Yep. Probably the easiest interview I've ever had to do. Hopefully get some uh, students out of that. And yep. You bet. Well, folks, thanks for listening in. Again, this has been the Station 34 podcast. Our guest was Aaron Fields, the creator of the Nozzled Forward uh, class workshop and strategy, philosophy in firefighting, and uh, a firefighter with the uh, Seattle Field or, or Seattle Fire Department. And uh, couldn't have been a greater conversation. So um, 
Thanks so much for, uh, thank again to Aaron. Go to, just Google Nozzle Forward Aaron Fields. You will find tons of information about him out there. Uh, once again, Station 34 Podcast, David Van Sluten. Lance Corhorn. We will see you soon. Bye-bye.